this podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 133. I just feel like it should be more than that. Well, that's because we record like 5 million shorts a month. Well, that's true. Maybe that's what it is. I mean, there's over 100 and where we we're almost 200 of those. I know, and it great. So when you combine everything together, we've actually sat down and recorded for probably 350, close to 400 when you figure all the other bonus episodes. Mm-hmm. How about that? That's cool. Hi, guys. Welcome aboard. We got a, a cool story for you tonight, I think. <laughs> uh, Something that Tracy didn't even realize existed. The Men in Black. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to do The Men in Black tonight, and Tracy thought that was only a movie. I swear. I didn't know that was a th- not a thing. <laughs> I thought it was a movie that Will Smith would just like rocked it out. Well, uh, right. Uh, 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 uh. So, obviously, first and foremost, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you for all you do. Thank you, guys. We love you so much. Keeping and us safe is a wonderful thing, and we pray for you all the time. Absolutely. And we uh, also wanted to bring up that if you're feeling down and, and out, and it probably holds a little... Closer to what we're uh, even normally do because we just, even though it's not somebody we know, we just got to watching a television episode about, uh, it was like one of those My 600 Pound Life shows that Tracy watches nonstop. It's the only thing that's ever on our TV. (laughs) But anyway, you know, you sit there and you, those type of shows you actually feel like you get to know somebody because you see their little journey and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And at the end of it, I mean, after watching this, it just flashes on the screen in memory of. So that immediately is like, well, I mean, they didn't tell you anything. They oh just said gosh. in memory of. And I... then it had this, the date and he had just passed away in August. Yeah. Of eight, yeah. So we Googled it and found out that he actually died of a self-inflicted gun, gunshot wound. I'll tell you what, that hurt my soul. I, I I literally cried. I had to contain myself before I started the show because it's like he said, I mean, you don't know these people. But he he was just a sweet person. He came on this journey, and he got down to like... 200 he was over, pounds. He, he was like 650 two- pounds when he started. Got down to 200. Yeah. And, you know, but if you watch the show, he struggled. He was adopted from birth, mm-hmm. and he struggled with feeling like he was a disappointment to his parents, and he, and he struggled with relationship with both of his adopted parents. His, yeah. Talked a little bit about his real dad, ran across him, and was sending him some messages, which he didn't want to have anything to do with. Yeah. So he obviously had a bunch of other issues. Yeah. You know, in, in life. And it just brings us to the point that, you know, he felt like at some point in time that this was, you know, he left some um, Facebook messages and stuff apparently that day saying that 
he had to deal with his own demons in his way. Mm-hmm. So even though he had lost, got all the way down to 200 pounds, so he had mm-hmm. lost a lot of weight, which was a main thing. He had lost his leg in a car, uh, wreck. car wreck and gained all of his weight after that. But even before that, he felt like he was a failure, a disappointment, and his parents didn't feel like that. No, not at all. But that's what he felt like for whatever way. And there was a time where he met with a psychologist for for a few minutes on the show, and he was telling her those things. And she basically told him, you have to accept yourself. You have to um, be your number one cheerleader, basically. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you think other people think. It, what's important is what you think. So you got to be you and work on you before you can worry about anybody yeah. else. And so, you know, with that being said, you know, it was something that right before we oh start to record, you know, we we looked this up and read a bunch of stuff about it. Yeah. So we just want to say if you're somebody who has those types of feelings, please realize that more times than not, probably what you're thinking is not reality. Right. Um, you do have people who care and people who love you and people who want to see you get to where uh, you need to be in life and will gladly help you. Yes. And uh, we'll gladly help you. People in our group will gladly help you. And the people at the Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-8255, will help you. And if you're more of a texter, 741-741. Yeah, please contact us or somebody. I do not want to read about anybody anymore. I mean, like he said, I didn't even know that person, but it was it just devastated me. I was heartbroken. I literally cried, and I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, I was not expecting that to pop up on the screen. They didn't give you any kind of warning or anything. No, and there was no explanation, so you uh, didn't know. And- gosh, it was so awful. And we don't. We just want you all to know, please, please, please reach out. We beg you. Please. Don't yeah. feel like you're alone. So, yeah, we appreciate it. And uh, before we get on the show, we do have a couple of, of thank yous we wanted to throw out. Yes. Casey Burr, I love, 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 love my necklace. Thank you so much for taking the time out to do that. It's so beautiful. I'm, I've worn it every day since I've gotten it. And I just want to say thank you again. Uh, Tina Oler, that gift box, I'm telling you what, you put so much thought into that, and you covered every one of us in this family. Except for the ferrets. Except for the ferrets, but that's And they okay. were highly disappointed. <laughs> And there's two of them, so they can conspire against you. Yeah, that's true. But I just want to say thank you for taking the time out to do that. You are also having support for me and Jerry after my heart attack has been overwhelming. And, uh, okay, I'm going to have to stop because I'm getting emotional again. All right. Well, let me say this. Let's go on to um, as far as the necklace. This necklace was like a pendant that has a uh, like a miniature seahorse in it. It's a real seahorse. And Casey Burr makes these things. She's with Southern Grimoires. And look her up on Instagram. She's got some of the coolest jewelry out there. And a lot of it kind of has a little bit of a, uh, I don't want to say dark, but it's kind of dark. Some of it's a little bit morbid, but it's cool as hell. And we've already gotten, uh, I got Tracy a necklace for Christmas from her. I got my granddaughter a, a necklace from there. And then I've got... This one. So, I mean, I can't seem to stop buying stuff. And I know Dina Marie's <laughs> bought some stuff from her. But she's got awesome stuff. So, yeah, check her out. she does a great job. Yeah. And so- I love it. Southern Grimoires. Check it out. And I think you'll be happy. Okay. We'll do um, the Patreon and the iTunes shoutouts in the middle of the show. And don't forget, tonight is the third installment of Hibbly Horror House. Yikes. So, a lot of good reviews so yeah, far. People yeah. are happy. A couple of things to address on it real quick, though. People, uh, 
did say, hey, we wish they were a little bit longer. The first two episodes were definitely the two shortest. That's why we played two of them. Tonight's episode's a little bit longer. It's almost nine minutes. Uh, I know there's a couple of episodes coming up. And, and as we, as Tim and uh, writes the uh, seasons going forward, they're all going to be a lot longer. So uh, just a little trial and error, just getting into something. You don't realize how long something's going to be. You put it on paper and it seems long. And then when you record it, it's not as long as it looks like. So <laughs> Sort of like that mile thing on the map. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so it's like I was saying, when I told Tracy about this, she had no idea this was a real thing as far as people having reports on this going all the way back to the 40s. She just felt like this was just the movies. And I just got me wondering how many other people feel like that this is just the movies that didn't realize that the movies were based on something that's no. been happening since the 40s. No, I had no clue. All right, so, I mean, is it real or not? Who knows? It depends on who you ask to. Mm-hmm. Ask to? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, it depends on who you talk to or who yeah. you ask. The reality of it is, like so many things we, we talk about, who knows? Mm-hmm. But we're going to talk about some stories that are out there, and we'll tell you um, our thoughts on it, and some of them will have a professional opinions on whether they're real or not, and we'll kind of discuss all of it. Okay. All right. So there's several different Men in Black sightings since the 40s and Probably wouldn't surprise anybody that most of these started after Roswell. Yeah. So much like the movie, they do show up after a sighting, and they want to find out how much you actually know. Now, they don't use that device that erases your memory, though. Oh, dang, that would be cool. <laughs> they pretty much just tell you to shut your damn mouth uh, or else. <laughs> so, dang. Either way, it's effective. <laughs> So we're going to talk about a bunch of these incidents tonight, and uh, tonight is going to be quantity over quality. And what I mean by that is we're going to talk in depth about a couple of them, and then a couple of them we're just going to breeze through because we really can't get in depth on all of them. We'll get our point across. But the ones that are really important, I'm going to make sure that we uh, talk about as much detail, in fact, as we can. So on the very first one, this is the kind of the one that kicked off all the conspiracy theories, and it goes all the way back to June 21st, 1947. Now, at this time, um, we were going to be in the Puget Sound, which is up in Washington State. And there was a bunch of logs and stuff that would be in the water because, obviously, this was a big logging area. Yeah. And they would put the logs in the water and then shift them up, kind of drift them upstream to the uh, the factories and stuff, the oh. paper mills and all that. Well, sometimes these logs, they would be like in big stockpiles, you know, but then some, some of them would drift apart from the others, and it would be a hazard because they would be in the water, so they would have to get companies would go out there and they would gather these logs up, and then they would take them to where they were supposed to be going, and they would get a fee for right, them in. like Sal- on a barge like a or something, fee. you mean? Or No, I think it's more just like, I mean, I guess, I really don't know, but I mean, I guess it was probably something similar mm-hmm. to that. So they would just gather them up the strays, get them where they needed to go. Well, in this case, there was a gentleman by the name of Harold Dahl who worked on one of these these boats. His supervisor was a gentleman by the name of Fred Christman. And on the day that Dahl was out, he was out there on his boat. He had his son, a dog, and two other men. Now, it's funny, from this point on, we won't even hear about the two other men. I oh. couldn't find any, even in the personal account 
that was done by Mr. Dahl and, and the reports and everything. I never heard another mention of the other men oh, other than there was two other men on the boat. That's so weird. It is weird because when we're going to get into the details, you'll be like, well, didn't what they have to say mm-hmm. matter? But mm-hmm. apparently not. So it's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, they're close to a place called Maury Island, little island out there right off the uh, the coast of Washington. So Dahl looks up, and he notices six donut-shaped reflective objects about 2,000 feet above their boat. The center holes were about 25 feet across. When I say they were like donuts, they were really like donuts. He also saw portals on one of them, and he said it looked like there was like an observation window where something could look out. Five of these six objects just kind of circled over top of the six. So just kind of picture you got one lower than the other, and then the other five were higher, mm-hmm. but circled around. So just doing circles right on, right on top of it, basically. He said that the, the one that was the lowest, that was by itself, it started to kind of slowly drop. And it stopped hovering about 500 feet above the water. So it's dropped about 1,500 feet oh, yeah, from where it originally mm-hmm. was. Well, Dahl was obviously scared that this thing might crash into his boat or something, so he gets the boat back to shore. He then had a camera on him, so he took several pictures, which, first of all, I think it's odd that somebody in 1947 would have a camera on them. It's not like today, where everybody's got camera phones and all that. Yeah. But maybe they used it for their job, so I'm not sure. But he had a camera, and he took a bunch of pictures. So the lower the ship hovered, um, or the lower ship had actually started hovering in place for about five minutes. And the other ships were still circling over top of it. One of the ships left the formation, and it touched one of the other ships. And it stayed just kind of touching like that for several minutes until Dahl said he heard a loud noise. Dahl said thousands of pieces of what looked like newspaper started dropping from the inside of the center ship. Whoa. He said some of the debris hit um, the beach but most of it landed in the water. So Dahl then snagged a few pieces of it, and, and he said it was like a really white, lightweight metal, almost like aluminum or something. Uh-huh. And he said it had dropped almost 20 tons also of a dark metal. Good Lord. I don't know how he was able to distinguish that is a tons That is a bunch. He said that the dark metal that dropped looked like lava rock. He said that the metal was so hot that when it hit the water, that it, it made the water the steam, steam. And, and all that stuff. They ran for shelter, and a piece actually hit, as they were running, his son and burnt him in the arm. Oh, gosh. Another piece hit and killed his dog. <gasps> no, no, no. Doggy. After the craft rose back in the air, all the ships just headed west and disappeared. How rude. You're going to kill a dog and you're just going to leave the scene? <laughs> so Dahl said he tried the radio for help, but the radio didn't work. And so they just headed back to the dock. They dr- dropped the dog off the side of the boat, kind of like a little burial at sea, on their way back. Aww. And he said when they got back to shore, he took his son to the hospital, and he told Fred Christman, his supervisor, what happened. So Dahl then gave his supervisor the camera. And when the pictures were developed... It did show these ships, apparently. Mm. Oh, cool. The negatives, though, had spots on them that almost looked like they were caused by exposure to radiation, which would have mm. basically, uh, yeah. you know, in, included there was some kind of radiation in the air. So Crispin was skeptical of Dahl's story, even after seeing the pictures, and he went back to the location to kind of gather some rock samples. 
Now, while doing so, he saw one of these ships in the air himself. Oh. So Dahl told investigators the very next morning that a man wearing a black suit suggested that they go to breakfast together. So this guy reports this sighting. He reports it to a supervisor. And the very next morning, a man in a black suit shows up and says, hey, let's go to breakfast. Shows up at his office? I'm not sure where he showed up at, but he just... That somehow I got a hold of him the very oh, next dang. morning, said we need to go. Now, this was at 2 o'clock the day before when all this happened. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine by the time everything shook out and all that stuff, you're later in the day. Mm-hmm. So this guy says, okay, let's let's go to um, breakfast. He said this guy had a brand new black Buick. And he drove his car and the, the gentleman in the black Buick, they drove separately. They met at the restaurant. He said while they were at the restaurant, the man told Dahl in explicit detail everything that happened to them the day before. What? And uh, during this UFO encounter. He said, looked at him and he said, what I say to you is proof that I know a great deal more about your experience than what you want to believe. He then told him that if he spoke of the incident, bad things would happen to him. So Dahl and Chrisman, they were obviously in fear, but they sent some of the debris that they had collected and some statements about everything that had happened to a gentleman named Ray Palmer, who was a publisher in Chicago for a magazine. So Palmer then contacted a, a pilot by the name of Kenneth Arnold, who had seen a UFO in the Mount Rainier, Washington area, which isn't too far from there, just three or four days after Dahl and them had seen theirs. So Arnold and another pilot by the name of V.J. Smith, they came to Tacoma, Washington in July. They looked at Dahl's boat and interviewed a few people. Dahl and Chrisman did not turn over any pictures to them, though, mm. which is kind of odd. Cause Wait, I thought the, you said he sent pictures. No, they sent some stuff. They didn't send pictures, apparently, to the newspaper, uh, the oh. magazine publisher either. They just sent some evidence and oh, okay. debris and stuff. That's a good question, though, because I didn't catch that. Dahl also said that his son was missing at the oh, time. No. He's the one that got hit yeah. in the arm. And oddly enough, though, his son turned up in Montana. He was doing some kind of a, um, uh, like, serving tables. Oh, so he's like an adult person. Yeah, he's an okay. adult. He ended up at the serving tables in Montana, but he said he didn't know how he got there. Oh, that's creepy. <laughs> so on July 31st, Captain Lee... Davidson and First Lieutenant Frank Brown from the United States Air Force flew in from California to Washington to kind of see what was going on. They were intelligence agents as well as pilots, so they just wanted to kind of gather as much information as they could. After meeting with everyone, one of the officers said that they thought that there might be something to this story. But they had to leave at midnight because apparently this was the time when the Air Force wasn't its own entity mm-hmm. and it was part of the Army. And I think it was going to become its own entity. And that was all going to take place the very next day, August oh. 1st. So they had to be back yeah. for all the festivities and all that going on. Now, this is where the story starts to get strange if you didn't already think it was strange. So the officers, they get on a B-25 bomber and leave at 2 a.m. So they're already a couple hours past what they want it to be. They mm-hmm. want to leave at 12. There were two other enlisted men on the plane besides the officers. 20 minutes after takeoff, the plane crashed into Centralia, Washington. The two enlisted men 
parachuted out and made it to safety. But officers Davidson and Brown were both killed on impact. They were the first casualties of the Air Force. Oh, wow. As, as their own entity. Wow. And that took like no time at all. Yeah. Yeah, because they'd only been in their own entity for like two and a half hours. My gosh, that's terrible. Dahl and Chrisman said that the officers had some of the evidence with them. So they had given them some of the evidence, and it was on board that plane when it crashed. There were witnesses that say that they heard anti-aircraft uh, guns shoot the plane down. Local newspapers and the FBI had people calling, saying that the plane was shot down to cover up the uh, and dispose of the evidence that Brown and Davidson had discovered from Dahl and Chrisman. Now, because of the death happened in the crash, the FBI and Air Force each did an expanded investigation. The Air Force said that it was a terrible accident and uh, the motor caught fire and people started bailing out. But unfortunately, before the officers could bail out, a wing broke off. It hit the tail. It sent the plane spinning and it crashed, tragically killing the two officers. Hmm. That sounds like a setup. Another Air Force investigation, our investigator was looking at the incident um, with Harold Dahl. So he talked to Dahl and Chrisman. He said that the damage he saw didn't match what Chrisman and Dahl described. He said there, were, there weren't any piles of metal out on uh, Maury Island, and the samples that they gave him looked like uh, slag from a metal smelter. Mm -hmm. He and the FBI inspector came to the same conclusion that Donald Chrisman made the story up for publicity and for a magazine article. So now we've got the government saying, you made it up, none of your evidence looks to be this, and the two people who were on their side were tragically killed in a plane mm -hmm. accident that some people believe might have been shot down because they heard air, you know, yeah. gunshots. So the FBI told Dahl and Chrisman that their hoax was uh, foiled, and if they dropped the matter, they wouldn't be prosecuted for fraud that led to the death of two officers. Wow. So let's let's cover this. Two officers are killed. If If this was fake, and I'm not saying it was, wasn't. But if this was a hoax and you've wasted all this military's time, effort, flying to, investigating, doesn't it seem odd that they would just say, shut up about it and we'll just drop it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that just seems like that with that much involved, especially when two people yeah, were killed, killed yeah. during the course of what was a hoax, that there would be some kind of hell to pay. So Dahl and Crispin obviously went along with the story. Um, they they didn't want to, you know, suffer any future consequences. They even made statements that said that their story was fake and they refused to give any interviews on the subject. But a few years later, Crispin recanted that and said that it did happen. We talked about Kenneth Arnold earlier, who was the gentleman that had seen the UFO a couple of days after them. He ended up writing a book in 1952 called The Coming of the Saucer. And he included this incident as a real story. Now, today, some think that it was a hoax, and some think that it was a U.S. conspiracy somehow, some way, that involved UFOs dumping nuclear waste. And the B-52 bomber was actually shot down, sabotaged, in order to eliminate uh, the evidence that the investigators had gotten from from uh, Dahl and Chrisman. 
as well as eliminating the investigators themselves. So that's the first incident to where a man in black, the gentleman that came to the restaurant, was ever noted mm-hmm. in, in doing anything. So next, we got Albert Bender's story. This one goes to 1953, so we're about six years later. So we told you about that it's widely known, uh, or what was widely known as the first Men in Black incident, but this story may be the one that contributed to the legend of the Men in Black, at, uh, probably more than any other story. So you got Dr. Albert Bender. He was a very extremely intelligent researcher who was an avid UFO enthusiast. He founded the International Flying Saucers Bureau. Oh, wow. Dr. Bender had a worldwide newsletter. It was called the the Space Review. And it wasn't huge, but it did go out to about 2,000 subscribers worldwide at the time. So that's, Mm -hmm. it's enough people, you know, looking at it. So in 1955, he was supposedly going to blow the lid off the government's attempts uh, to hide these things and, and be a conspiracy in one form or another to cover up the whole proof of the UFO thing. And it was going to come out in his newsletter. He had written the paper and it was going to be published in the space review. That changed when he got a visit from the men in black. Oh my gosh. I was going to wonder about that. Bender says three men dressed all in black came to his home and told him to stop pursuing the topic of UFOs any further. He was so scared that he immediately stopped all of his research and shut down the flying saucer bureau. People who knew Bender said that he changed the whole rest of his life from what he, the person that he was before. No kidding. Said he lived in constant anxiety and fear for the rest of his life. His later writings were more ramble and almost unreadable than anything he had done in the past. He was bombarded by mysterious phone calls all the way up to the end of his life in 2002, where people would call and there would just be nothing on the other line. Oh my God, that is sick. Now, a gentleman by the name of Gray Barker, he's an author. He wrote a book in 1956 called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. In this book, he talked about Bender's story and the Harold Dahl story. He noticed something that was in common about the two stories. Both were visited by men in black suits after talking about UFOs. That's the t- how the term men in black was actually started. So his connection that the two were both visited by men in black suits after you, the UFO. So did nothing happen to the guy that wrote the book? Not that I had seen, but we're going to talk a lot about him, too. Well, a couple of these guys wrote books, so but mm-hmm. there wouldn't, like I said, there's hundreds of these stories. We only touched on a couple. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they did or didn't because I don't know. They, I didn't come across that. Okay. It's a good question, though. Thanks. Most people in the UFO community consider Gray Barker to be more of a con artist than a help to their cause. You know, Bender went out uh, and wrote his own book eventually in 1962, nine years later, where he discussed in full what the men in black uh, actually did during his encounter. So here's what he said. He said they floated about four feet off the floor. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to Homburg style, which is pretty much what they wore in the men in black movies. It's that type of hat. Blues Brothers type hat. Oh, yeah. So it's the type of thing. So he said they had those kind of hats on. They looked like clergy. Their face were not clearly discernible for their hats partially hid and shaded them. The eyes of all three suddenly lit up like flashlight bulbs. They seemed to burn into my very soul. 
as the pain above my eyes became almost unbearable. Oh, my God. I was going to say, I mean, it sounds scary, but if that they did all that, I'd be scared, too. Gray Barker wrote several books about UFOs and the paranormal, including a book that you would probably be aware of from 1970 called The Silver Bridge that helped spread the story of a very well-known paranormal figure. Any idea what figure that would be? The Mothman? The Mothman. So he he was in all of So he was on Men in Black stories. He was on The Mothman. So oh, wow. this guy was all over stuff. And a lot of people kind of felt like that um, he was in it for the money. He didn't really necessarily yeah. believe anything that he was writing. It was just, hey, whatever can make a good book. I'll just go along with it. So that's, 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 so that's why a lot of people in the UFO community don't put a lot of credence in, in stuff him, he yeah. says. Mm-hmm. So let's discuss a few other Men in Black stories because they definitely didn't stop with the first two stories. But those were the two biggest. The first two and the two biggest. In September 1976, Dr. Herbert Hopkins, he was a doctor and a hypnotist. He was doing a consulting gig on an alleged UFO teleportation case in Maine. He was alone one night and he got a call from a man who said that he was from the New Jersey UFO Research Organization. Now, keep in mind, this is 78, no cell phones, nothing like that. So, right. he called on the house phone. He went to visit Dr. Hopkins to discuss the case, and the doctor agreed. Oddly enough, though, the gentleman showed up just a few minutes later. What? <laughs> That's what I said some, oh, yeah, because so he can't like, call from a cell yeah, phone. Yeah, it's not like he called from the car. Oh, my gosh. It, it happened so quick that the doctor gets off the phone and he goes to turn on the porch light so the guy can see. And as soon as he goes to turn the porch light on, the guy's already walking up the steps. He said he had on a black suit and a tie and he had weird facial expressions. So Dr. Hopkins said that he didn't see a car out there, but even if he did have a car, how in the hell would he get here so quick? Like I said, pre-cell phone. So Mm -hmm. even if you called from a pay phone up the road or something, you couldn't have got there as quick as what this guy did. So the doctor notices that the himself, the doctor, is doing things out of his own character. For example, this is in an area where there was a lot of high crime recently. And here he is letting a complete stranger that he knows nothing about in his house, which is something he never would have normally done. But he yeah. just did it. He never even asked the man's name. And he said even his dog started acting funny. As soon as he let the man in, he said the dog started barking. And it ran to the closet with his tail between his legs, which he never did. Oh, The dog, not the doctor. doctor <laughs> I kind of figured that. <laughs> <laughs> now, aside from the black suit and tie that he had on a white shirt and white gloves. Now, one of the stories I read said he had on white gloves. Another story said it's gray gloves. Hmm. So I'm not sure. Maybe but his gray gloves were dirty. It's possible. So the clothes all looked to be too big for the man. It's like, uh, you know, like David Byrne from... Talking heads or something when he had a giant suit on. But anyway, he just said that it just didn't seem like the clothes fit the man. It was just way too big for him. So the visitor took off his hat, and a doctor noticed almost immediately that he had no hair or eyebrows. So the alien dressed up in the suit? I don't know, but that's very similar to what mm-hmm. a gentleman in 1953 said, something about yeah. none of that. Now, keep in mind, these are all prof- both the last two stories, this one and the one for these are both doctors. These are professionals. Mm-hmm. So I think that lends a little more credence to them yeah. not making up stuff. But he said he had a very white face, little ears, a little nose, and his lips were a very bright red, abnormally bright red. 
Now, sometime during the conversation they were having, the man brushed his lips with the gloves. Unbeknownst to the stranger, the doctor noticed that his lips were now smeared and it looked like there was lipstick on his gloves. So that would explain the bright red mm-hmm. lips, but doesn't make sense why that would be the case. So this is all strange from the get-go. But after asking some questions to Dr. Hopkins, he then says something very peculiar. He say, he tells the doctor, you've got two coins in your pocket. Which he did. It's exactly two coins. He says, pull one of them out. So he pulls out a shiny new penny. And a visitor asked him to watch the coin closely in the palm of his hand. So Hopkins watches the coin in the palm, and it starts to turn into like a silvery appearance. Then it starts to go out of focus, begins to fade, and then disappears completely. That's a cool trick. It is. Turns out the visitor was David Copperfield. (laughs) So the visitor says that coin would never be seen on this plane again. Wow. And then the visitor says, hey, are you familiar with Barney Hill, who had said he had been abducted years before? And he said, well, I know the name, and I know, I'm pretty sure that he died not that long ago. The visitor said that Dr. Hopkins was correct. He had passed on. He said, Barney didn't have a heart, just like you no longer have a coin. So I guess he pretty much suggested, guess what else I can make disappear? Oh, why has it got to be so mean? It. I did want to point out, too, that uh, Barney Hill died of a brain hemorrhage, so it wasn't even a heart. Oh. But anyway, that still doesn't take away from what the guy said. Yeah. Um, the visitor then suggested that Hopkins destroy all of his material he had on the case and that he had been consulting on. He just gently said, uh, uh, you might want to get rid of all that stuff. Now something even stranger started to happen. He said as he said this, the, the the stranger's speech started to slow down. He got up to his feet, but he kind of staggered as he did it. The visitor. He slowly said his energy was running low and he must leave now. Goodbye. He gingerly walked down the steps. He was kind of clinging to the rail the whole time like he mm-hmm. literally had zero energy. Dr. Hopkins noticed a very bright light shining up the driveway. This was a brighter than a car light, and it was kind of a bluish white light. So I guess it was kind of like the damn lights they got now that you can't see on the roads. Yeah. They were way ahead of their time, I guess, back then. So keep in mind that there was no light when he showed up, Mm -hmm. only when he was leaving. Why didn't he push him down the stairs? I don't know why he didn't do that. So... Hopkins ran to the kitchen window and he looked out, kind of, kind of wanted to watch the guy leave. And he said the light was already gone by that time. He ran out to the porch, but he didn't see any sign of a car anywhere in the area. He definitely didn't see the, the, the visitor, but he did notice that when the visitor left, he wasn't walking towards the driveway. He was walking toward a hedge that he wasn't going to be able to get past. It was like a really dense hedge, uh-huh. almost like a fence line. He was not going to be able to walk past that hedge, mm-hmm. but yet there was no sign of the man Anywhere. So needless to say, Hopkins was so scared, he went into the other room and pulled out a gun. He destroyed all of his info that he had on the case. With a gun? Well, I don't think he destroyed it with a gun. He just wanted to have protection (laughs) just in case. (laughs) But strange things began to happen around his house after that. He started having problems with his telephones, lots of static 
on the phone. Or his phone would be dead, or he couldn't call out or have anybody call him. Patients complained that they would get a voice saying that the number was no longer in service or no one would answer at all when they called. The phone company determined that um, his line was tapped or being tampered with, but they didn't have a clue by whom. Oh, dang. So let's go back to the night of the visit. After everyone got home, he kind of checked, went out and kind of checked the driveway a little bit. The only marks there that he found was like a small tractor, uh, like a Caterpillar type tractor Mm -hmm. that was literally four inches wide and 18 inches long. And it was right in the center of the driveway. Wouldn't there before, but it was there now. The driveway was so narrow that it would have been impossible for a car to make that kind of a, to get the center and make that kind of a mark. So that wouldn't it. It was too too deep or distinct for a motorcycle, and it was way too short to be a motorcycle. By morning time, the tracks were completely gone, even though no one else had come into the driveway. So they were there that night, gone by the morning, and nobody was in the driveway that would have messed with it. Oh, my gosh. That's some creepy crap. So with all this going on, Dr. Hopkins decided to call the New Jersey uh, UFO Research Organization only to find out that it doesn't exist. <gasps> what? <laughs> how about that? Wait, how did he find out it didn't exist? He called on his tampered phone. <laughs> so he called, he just called around, I guess. I mean, they didn't have Google back then. So. But then, like, nobody's like, what are you talking about? Is that what they said? Yeah, or? I guess. I mean, I guess he just started, you know, looking up in the phone book and calling information. He probably called information. That's what everybody how bizarre. How bizarre. <laughs> so let's do a couple other quick ones because there are, like I said, literally hundreds of these things. We won't be able to go to all. So we're going to talk about Paul Miller, not the gentleman we bought our car from. Because <laughs> that was Paul Miller Ford. But... Paul went on a hunting trip, and he saw a luminous disc up in the sky. The disc landed in a field, and he said two humanoids got out. He shot at them. He said he thinks he injured one, and he was so scared, he just basically fled the scene. So he he notices that after this happened, from the time that he saw them and fled the scene, he's lost about three hours worth of time. Has no clue where it went, which is the same thing that uh, Benny, Benny Hill, Barney Hill. <laughs> it would have been funnier with Benny Hill. Uh, yeah, Barney well, Hill and his wife. Uh, oh, which my I think goodness. Betty, uh, Barney and Betty Hill. That's what when they're UFO sighted, and they were the first people would ever talk about losing time that they just didn't know, you know, seemed like minutes. And then all of a sudden hours were gone. They have no idea. That's so what crazy. So he said that three hours from the time he saw the craft. Now. Probably want to mention too that um, Paul Miller worked at the Air Force. Oh, so he shows up for work the next morning, and he hadn't told anybody about what's going on. As soon as he gets to work, he's confronted by three men in black suits. They said that they had his file, and they knew all about his encounter, and it would be best if he just forgot about it. Dude, this is freaking me out. <laughs> He said they seemed to know everything about him, and they asked questions as if they already knew the answers. He said he was so terrorized, he didn't come to uh, uh, forward about what he had seen until years later. He eventually told somebody, but it was years later. Oh, my gosh. Now you got a situation in the 1980s in Wytheville, Virginia. There was a bunch of UFO sightings in the county, and there was a radio DJ by the name of Danny Gordon And he decided he wanted to look into it. He became literally obsessed with getting pictures 
of, of these UFOs. And there was actually one time where there was an entire school bus of students saw UFOs flying over a shopping mall and Gordon was able to take a bunch of pictures of them. Okay. He got a few at really close range that showed that obviously these things were not from the Air Force or something like mm-hmm. that. They, they weren't from this world at all. And then strange things started to happen for him. He got a phone call from a man who claimed to be ex-military and he just kind of gave him a warning that he should stop his research for his family's sake because it will cost him everything. So then Gordon was interviewed by two men in black suits who supposedly worked for a magazine. Shortly after the interview, he noticed all of the pictures that he had were missing. Hmm. He called the magazine, but they said they had never heard of him and definitely didn't plan on doing any story on him. So this magazine existed, but these men obviously weren't from the magazine. Soon after that, Gordon had a heart attack, and he said that the doctor told him that the stress that he was experiencing was jeopardizing his health, and he needed to probably give up on his research, and he did, and was never bothered again. Oh, well, that's good. UFO researcher Jack and Mary Robinson, their husband and wife team, they started to have some strange events happen to them. Now, they didn't have any specific sighting, but they just doing a lot of research and stuff. They would come home and find that their house was completely ransacked and all of their UFO files were disturbed. A strange man in a black suit and hat would stare up at them at their apartment from the doorway downstairs. Mary told one of her friends, a gentleman by the name of, of Tim Green, and he came over one day and he saw the man himself He actually took a picture of this one, and it's one of the best pictures of proof of men in black. Now, this depends on your opinion. I've seen the picture, and I'll post a picture. There's really not a lot of pictures I can post for this show, Mm -hmm. obviously. What Uh, if they come and get us? I don't think they will. Oh, my gosh. I didn't think of that. (laughs) Well, the Masons didn't come get us, so. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, so with the... This picture, I mean, it's, it's a guy in a hat. It's a black and white picture, first of all. So it's going to be in black. <laughs> it's a black and white picture. It's going to be in black, white, or gray. But anyway, he um, he's standing kind of in a doorway. But, I mean, it could just be any guy in, in a suit and hat. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really see how you can call it proof. But anyway, that's, you know, that's what the picture we got. And the last story we're going to share involves somebody famous. Dan Aykroyd. So Dan Aykroyd was working, and I don't know what the year of this was. Dan Aykroyd was working on a paranormal show. They were filming. They were at the studio. He got a call from Britney Spears uh, wanting him to appear on Saturday Night Live with her. Mm -hmm. So he goes outside the studio to take the call. As he's talking to her, he looks over and he sees a guy in a black hat, black suit, in a black SUV. He turns around, he's talking to Brittany, he turns back, the guy's gone. He goes inside the studio and is told, um, show's canceled and we need to stop filming immediately. What in the world? And he is 100% convinced that the gentleman out there in that black suit or the men in black in general had something to do with the cancellation of his show. Dan Aykroyd is an avid UFO uh, advocate that they exist. And uh, I, I can't remember if he's actually had a sighting himself. I believe he has. 
Uh, but yeah, he's real big into that. And like I said, this show was going to be on the paranormal. It's a fascination of his. But literally, just after he sees the guy, goes back in, they tell him it's canceled, and we need to quit filming immediately. Oh, my gosh. That's ridiculous. So. Dang it. I said that was going to be the last story, but it's really not the last story. It's kind of the last story. But the other story, back in 2012, at a Canadian hotel, a bellboy told his manager one day that two strange-looking men in black suits and hats had come in the day before looking for the manager, but the manager had taken the day off that day. He said they freaked everybody out. He said they had these large blue eyes that never blinked. They looked exactly alike in the face. The two guys were identical. He said it could have been could have been identical twins. They had no facial hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, and it looked like they had wigs attached to their hats. <laughs> huh. It just didn't look real at all. He said they were talking about the government and conspiracies and he said uh, the manager came came in that day after, you know, them telling him this. He checked the camera, and sure enough, there were the two guys walking in on camera. So that's a picture you can actually find out there is the two guys there. So oh, like I said, wow. Not a bunch of pictures. I'll probably post those couple of pictures, but mm-hmm. that's really all that we can really do that go with that. Wow. That's so interesting. So the question is, first of all, do they exist? And another question is, if they do exist, are they human or are they alien? Because some people believe that, like in the movie, they're actually working in conjunction with each other, and some of these may be aliens, some might be human, or it might be uh, a mixture of both, Mm -hmm. with aliens actually walking among us on a regular basis. Other things, you know, people think there's just all kind of uh, either folklore or mass panic, Uh, a psychological type of drama that uh, due to, you know, what people suggest and a willingness to believe. So you might believe in something just because everybody else has already implanted it. Mm-hmm. You know, if I tell you, hey, uh, I'm getting ready to leave. You're going to be all alone tonight and I'm getting ready to leave. And I say something on the way out like, well, I mean, hope there's not a lot of crazy sounds and stuff tonight. You're probably going to pick up on every crazy sound just mm-hmm. because I oh, mentioned Oh, yeah, of it. course. And that's kind of the same thing. Uh, a big part of the population believe that it is a real government agency designed to prevent the public from learning the truth about ufos and i think the reason for that would be and i'm i actually do believe that the men in black are a real organization Mm -hmm. i do think that the government knows way more about ufos than they Mm -hmm. uh, would ever want the public to know just because they don't want to you know it could be a couple things could be a mass panic thing they might be afraid that people would just go berserk Um, it could be that Aliens have given us technology that could could completely destroy, you know, our uh, economy. Think about this, and, pe- and some people probably don't think about it, but I had a buddy of mine that was in the military. Now he was full of crap most of the time. So, but he said, not that I'm bleeding any credence, but it did get me thinking. He said that the government already knows how they could have. They could fuel the whole country, enough electricity for the entire country for pennies on a dollar Mm -hmm. because they they know how to create an energy that could do that. But if they did unleash that, then all of a sudden, all the money we pay to utility companies wouldn't be there. That would crash the economy. So therefore, we don't do it. You know, there are plenty of people that think they could create, you know, there's been a couple of stories out there about people that supposedly had created water, cars that could run on waters. 
you know, which would basically cost you nothing to run. What would that do, though, to yeah. the economy? Right. So, you know, and, and a couple of people that supposedly have created that, they've been bought off and, and you know, go away somewhere. So who knows how much truth is any of that? It all just could just be conspiracy stuff. But I could imagine if the government had a bunch of cures for diseases and ways to uh, give energy and power to the whole world without it costing hardly anything, that would destroy the economy. Yeah, I'm sure it would. So what do you think? Is it true? Is it real? Are they fake, made up? I don't believe it's fake at all. But I also don't think I want to know. <laughs> that's <laughs> probably true. I, that's probably true about a lot of stuff we yeah, talk about. Yeah, I don't think I want to know the details. But I think it would be cool to hang out with some aliens if they were chill. <laughs> like the ones on the TV show, the movie? Yeah. yeah. And they're all messing up the coffee room and stuff? Yep, yep. So... Tracy's getting ready to read the uh, iTunes reviews that we have for a week. We had a nice nice amount of them. Yeah, we sure did. J. Kelly, 2408. Woody Chit, 27. <laughs> Carissa, 1023. Jessica Tiemann, 355. Ironhead Chopper, 73. Chubby Checker. Kathy Hillenbrand, Days for Days. And our Patreon supporters is Brandy Petricone. I know I probably messed that up, honey. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Holly Fox Schaffner. I should have had you read these, baby. I know it. John Hannaway. Natalie <laughs> Denelt. Emma Kay. Mandy Schumacher. And Brandy Smith. And I apologize, Brandy, for not mentioning you last week, honey. I don't know what happened, but we love you so much. And we just want to thank you guys for your patronage, your support. It just means so much to us. All the reviews, we love them. And they've been all awesome. So we love that a lot. Keep them coming. Yep. We got to um, mention the live shows. We are almost sold out on everything. As of today, when we're recording this, we are down to 21 tickets left for the second Houston show. Mm-hmm. After the first one sold out. We've got a lot of, uh, let's see, the Louisville show only has 18 tickets left. Yep. For that one, that's the one that's got exorcist, uh, Bishop Long. He's an exorcist and a demonologist. You guys, if you're in the Louisville area, you'll want to see that. Still nothing new on the Waverly tour. I know they haven't added another tour yet. We're still hoping. Got a couple months, but, uh, hopefully they add another tour for that. But that yeah. one's been sold out now for a long time. Yeah. And then, uh, we've got 13. Tickets left for Bobby Mackey's. Mm-hmm. You'll want to come to that one because that's inside of Bobby Mackey's. You're going to get a tour included with your ticket price. Yeah, that's great. So that's going to be awesome. You'll and then all of our other tickets are on sale. I don't want to get into you know eight different shows, but Indianapolis with Brohio, we've got the Mothman show with uh, uh, Diane and History Goes Bump and Brohio. That's in October, so that one is a bit away. Uh, Indianapolis is Justin Rimmel. Us and Brohio, that's in July, I think. I can't keep track. That's why you got to go to the website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. You can get all your tickets there. But I did want to mention that the Kansas, Atchison, Kansas, Sally House. That's fun because you've got a chance to win, a chance to spend a night with Tracy and myself, Justin, and you and a friend. That's yeah. pretty cool. I like how you said you didn't want to get into all the shows and you went right for all the shows. I know. I kind of did, but I didn't get into details, details. <laughs> so... Thank you, guys. You are amazeballs. I'm just telling you. This is amazing. And we are so excited for this all to happen. So are you ready 
for the third installment of Hillbilly Horror House. Yeah, yeah. Let's give it a listen. Hi, and welcome to Hillbilly Horror House. We have put a lot of work into making this podcast a sound fest for your ears. In order to get the full effect, we highly recommend the use of headphones. Hillbilly Horror House. The Hunt. Three of Three. I'm, I'm fine. I'm just tired. Then at least talk to April about whatever's going on with you. No, I don't, I don't want to bother her. She's your best friend. When was the last time y'all actually talked? You're right. I'll give her a call. Maybe we can have the girls' day out or something. <laughs> More like freaks' day out. Now finish your coffee, mister, so we can leave. <sighs> Let's go find our new home. So, yeah, this was... This one's going to be pretty cool. the last house today. What was wrong with this one? It only had one full bath. You know I want two, David. But you found something wrong with everyone today, Amber. The first house you didn't like because the dogs next door were barking. Yeah, the dogs will keep us up all night. Yeah, but the second one you didn't like because the garage smelled dirty. It could be mold. No, Amber. It's called a garage. It's supposed to smell that way. Uh, no, look. Stop. Let's not fight about this. Well, it's a little too late for that now, isn't it? Amber, don't be like this. Look, I'm sorry, okay? We'll find the perfect house. It's somewhere out there. I just want you to be happy. I know you do. You know what they say, though. Happy wife. And a husband gets laid. <laughs> <laughs> we have a long ride home. Are you okay with me catching up on some sleep? Yeah, go ahead, babe. I'll wake you when we get close. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> 
baby you're okay you're okay look 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 at me look at me you're in the car you're okay look at me david i'm i'm so sorry no don't be it, it, it's it's okay are, are you okay yeah yeah i'm good <sighs> was it another dream about that house yeah sort of something like that come on amber you gotta talk about this it, it, it might help. Tell me about it, please. Please. Really to talk about. It's just this old Victorian home. Sort of looks like a giant version of the psycho house. It was sort of pushed back from the street some and covered in these scary looking vines. It was like they were taking over the life form of the house. Taking over the life force of the house? Huh. Well, it's out in the country. It's, it has a lot of old trees in the yard and, and a barn in the back. Great. We'll just call it the Hillbilly Horror House, then. Wait. Where are we? Uh, I, I just thought we would take the scenic route, babe. I wanted to get some extra sleep. You know, you, you haven't slept a lot lately. We just look so comfortable. But also... I wanted to see if I could find anything out here that, you know, maybe wasn't listed. Oh, you do love me. <laughs> Let's just go home, though. It's been a long day. Yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah, you know, tomorrow when we get up, I'll just I'll just go ahead and call her. Stop! David, stop! What the hell, Amber? <gasps> back it up. Back up the car. What? Why? Why? What, what, what did you see? Just back up the car, David. There it is. Amber, you can't just get out of the car. Amber, Amber, where are you going? Dang it, freak. Don't worry, I'll get your door. Man, I really need to do more cardio. Shh. David, look. <sighs> what? What am I looking at? Oh my god. Amber? Is that what I think it is? Yeah. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Writing, production, 
and editing done by Tim Mullins. Amber is played by Natasha Ali. David is played by Tim Mullins. The Ghost Lady is played by Rebecca Mullins. Narrating by me, Dana Gleason. So there's this week's Hillbilly Horror House, leaving you on a cliffhanger. Looks yeah. like they found what they were looking for. Yeah, they did. Or was it what they were looking mm. for? We'll have to listen to find out. Yep. So as you can see, this episode was a little bit longer, and mm-hmm. that's the way it's going to be in the future. I know the next couple are uh, even longer than those. So yeah. that was the main concern for most people was, hey, I wish they were a little bit longer. So like it's a trial and error, but mm-hmm. we've, we've got all that worked out. Tim and them are... Making longer episodes, so now we can be on uh, pins and needles till next week to find out what happens. <laughs> no, and and I already know what happens. Oh. I don't really know. I've got the episodes, but I haven't listened because I oh, want to listen. Don't. I want to listen like everybody else. Yeah, so. me too. Okay, thank you guys so much for everything you do. We appreciate it. Next week's story, I'll give you a little hint. It's going to be on deaths that were caused by the supernatural. Ooh. Or at least that's what some people believe. Some some who knows, but can't wait to hear speculation. that. Speculation. So, a couple of cool stories I think you'll you guys will like. Awesome. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, guys. We love you. Hi, this is Dina Marie, the host of the Twisted Philly podcast. Next month, I'm hosting a live event at Helium Comedy Club in Philadelphia on Sunday, March 17th from 2:30 p.m. to 4:30 p.m. Joining me will be Margot D. from the Book vs. Movie podcast. Margot and I will be talking about true crime. We'll have plenty of time for a meet and greet with me, Margot, and Jeremy Collins, host of the podcast we listen to podcast. Helium Comedy Club is a terrific space for live events. They've got a delicious menu so you can enjoy a late lunch and a few cocktails while you hang out with me and Margot and raise money for charity. This is a charity event. All profits from ticket sales will be donated to On Gracie's Wings. That's the charity that was founded by a few mothers from Abington, Pennsylvania, who wanted to do something in honor of Grace Packer. Grace was a 15-year-old girl who went missing in July 2016. Then months later, her body was found in Northeast Pennsylvania. Grace was murdered by her adoptive mother and her mother's boyfriend. Their trial begins next month, so we'll be sharing case updates about Grace, as well as other true crime stories from Philadelphia and the surrounding areas. You can get tickets for this event on Eventbrite. I've got a link for tickets on Twitter and Facebook, and an event that's easy to find on the Twisted Philly Facebook page. Tickets are $15 in advance, and all profits go to charity. We would love to see you there. Your support for this event will help children and families in foster care, as well as victims of domestic violence. Again, the event is on Sunday, March 17th at Helium Comedy Club in Philadelphia from 2.30 to 4.30.